Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. On this episode of the podcast, we actually did a wine one, believe it or not. We finally were able to get to one. Only took us a year after we got our shop done and the studio built out. Uh, so I was really excited to have on uh, Bibiana Gonzalez Rave. She's an amazing winemaker out of Sonoma. Uh, she was voted or named winemaker of the year in 2015 from the San Francisco Chronicle. Voted uh, top 40 under 40. This lady is fantastic, and I'm super excited she was able to make it on. She brought on with her her Cutlea wines. Um, honestly, they were fantastic. It's really fun that we were able to sit down and have a long conversation with her, talk about what it was like growing up in Colombia, you know, how she got into the wine industry, what it's like working as a wine consultant for Paul Meyer and Wayfair, and just a few bunch of other things, too. So I really hope you enjoy this episode. Take care, everybody. Oh, you got a fancy new wine opener, yeah, huh? Yeah, we got a fancy new wine opener, which will eventually just be my fancy so, wine opener. I was gonna it's say, a short cork, though. I broke it. So. Yeah. Click, you know, welcome to the desert where everything John, falls apart. John's good at handling short corks. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That, 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 that one took a half a second. That, that wine key will go home with him pretty quick around here, too. Honestly, we lose so many damn wine keys around here. It's like back in the day when you had friends that smoked cigarettes and there was that one person that always stole the lighter. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, it's the same. that's the way we are with the wine keys around here. Just don't use the Catrella one. No, I'm going to cherish this that's one. That's a special one. I, I got home the other night. I had three of them in my pocket. Oh, really? <laughs> so, uh, I'm the guilty party, too. So uh, The bag I have over here has got 19 in it from whatever that one you used to work wow. for. Oh, Vias? No. Oh, uh, the Sextant ones? Yeah, Sextant ones. Or the ones. PVRs? Yeah, those, these giant behemoth ones. That fall apart after like 50 uses. These are horrible wine keys. Don't ever buy these for people. Okay. They just Let me see. servers hate them. Well, they they'll chip the top of the bottle. Oh. It's it's weird. They're just yeah. They seem fancy, but not fancy. Yeah. No. Okay. All right. Good to know. I like mine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, honestly, I, I have one of those. I'm not gonna say this right. Laguil. Like the really but, fancy but, one that with but, the but, little B on it. Yeah. But like, what? Which yeah. actually? Laguiola. That's okay. Laguiola. Yeah, so I have one of those. That's my cherished one. I those only use that for events. Those are beautiful. Yeah, that's collector's level. Yeah, he gave me one as a birthday gift. That oh. the the wood piece on it oh. is from what was it Marie Antoinette? Or, it's from Versailles. Yeah. It's from the uh, Marie Antoinette tree. Yeah. So it was, it was struck by lightning a number of years ago, and it was split in half. No way. And uh, a number of producers made some collector knives and corkscrews and things out of the actual tree in the wood. And I was wow. able to get my hands on one of the corkscrews that was made with the Marie Antoinette tree. That is such yeah, a special It's a super treat. nice present of them. Wow. And that one, I've only used that maybe like five or six times at really fancy events. And I'm like, these aren't the people who would even have any idea what this is. I need to use it way more. Yeah, it's nice to have it at the so house. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, you just need to get it open. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I've seen the dumbest way people have opened bottles like, between actually putting a screw in the top and using pliers to pull out a cork. I've seen people try the shoe trick where they actually like put it in the shoe and bang yes. it all, but it doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> and you just look crazy <laughs> smacking it on a wall. I was on a work trip once and they gave everybody a bottle of wine and there was no corkscrews. Uh. So we all got back to the hotel room at night and we were like trying to figure out how to open it up. And like we had like sporks that were trying to like punch them <laughs> through. <laughs> no, that's like, not going to get the job done, probably. It's like just buy someone, buy screw tops if you're going to do that. I just had somebody in the other day. They're starting a they just moved here from california and they had to learn how to do it where you heat the torch and grab the like bottleneck and then 
you know, re-hit it with water and it snaps off, basically. That's overkill, but still kind of like an old tradition that's clearly long since gone that I think they used for scotch and pork. So you had these wines before. I have had some of these wines. So, yeah, so as long as we're, you know, five minutes into this thing. Uh, today we have on Bibiana Gonzalez-Raves. Did I say that right? Yeah. Excellent. Uh, I know you from originally making wine at Wayfair and Paul Miner, and now you have your own winery. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. Uh, yes, I'm Bibiana. I was born and raised in Medellin, Colombia, a pretty cool place to grow up on the 80s. I don't oh, know. Oh, the 80s? <laughs> yeah. Everybody's thinking Narcos right now. Right. I know. I know. Nobody's thinking wine when I say that I make wine. Um, I'm actually the only Colombian winemaker you're ever going to meet, or at least now. Really? Yeah. Yeah, because for obvious reason, grapes don't grow in Colombia. Yeah, yeah. We we can plant the grapes, but you cannot really grow grapes for quality wine. Also, you can't make as much money on wine down there as you can other growing products. Exa exactly. Yeah. So I grew up in Colombia, and you are right. I have been making wine in California since 2004. I became the head winemaker for a winery called Linmar Estate in 2009. <laughs> we were just there. Really? That's crazy. No way. I had never yeah. We were just there a couple weeks ago. Who do you taste with? Oh, I cannot remember that guy's oh, name. Yeah, we bought some of the sparkling food. wine, and oh. we did the wine and uh, and uh, and we lunch food, thing. Yeah, we went walking through their their garden, and it's beautiful. It was it's beautiful. Just really, yeah. like the perfect place to go and see a vineyard and enjoy wine and eat great food. That's so, awesome. Really yeah. cool. So I was there, and then I got married uh, to my husband, who is also a winemaker, in 2011. And I decided to start Catreya Wines and to become a consultant winemaker. Very cool. Uh, and pretty soon after that, I became exclusively the consultant winemaker for Paul Meyer and Wayfair for six years. That's awesome. Uh, and in 2017, I decided to really focus 100% on my wines uh, because it has grown quite a bit and I needed to hire people and hire myself full time <laughs> to do it. So became full-time winemaker yeah, at that point. So it's pretty cool. It's so been a cool ride. When you talk about, because you said it earlier, uh, for some people, what exactly is a consultant winemaker versus like winemaker? Yeah, that is a great question. So, you know, the... When you're the winemaker, you are really like the person every day at the winery making the wines. And then there are people that have a lot of experience, that have a lot of knowledge from very different terroirs and vineyards and years and vintages uh, on their bed. So you kind of have something to give to other places and it can really help a lot of places to improve their quality. Very cool. So I initially had the plan to consult for only estate vineyard-owned wineries, but that were small. And then I ended up consulting for Jason Paul Meyer for a while. Uh, but I was pretty much at 300% of my time dedicated <laughs> to that property. That sounds about right. So it didn't really apply the concept of uh, when you're a consultant, you just show up, you blend, and you leave. I was really the vineyard manager and the winemaker for Wayfair. So Wayfair didn't exist. Uh, we started that project when I took over as a consultant winemaker. And then I took over the Napa production, so I was driving. You like, really did everything. Yeah, so I was driving like one thousand miles a week. <laughs> oh geez. Yeah, because I don't. I don't think what yeah. some people realize. Palmer is in Napa, but Wayfair it says like Sonoma close. Coast, but it is way out in nowhere. Way it's closer to the Pacific far. Ocean than I imagine it is yes. Sonoma. Yeah, so it was really a lot of driving, and I am a very. I was trained in France. I studied winemaking there for six years. So I have a degree in viticulture and enology from Cognac, and then I went to the University of Bordeaux. 
So I was really trained in the vineyards before I was trained as a winemaker. So for me to having my boots on the land every day is very important. And I'm kind of a control freak. So <laughs> I want to control everything to a point that I kill myself when I don't have time <laughs> to do it. Um, so I really was dedicated to go to every single vineyard at least once a week or t every two weeks. And that's just a lot to cover when you are, you know, yeah. covering Napa and Sonoma and also making... And trying to have a life. <laughs> and having kids. I have two boys, a six and a four years old. Okay. Uh, so, yeah. So future free labor for you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, we can't wait. It's smart. You know, make them the winemakers and, uh, you know, you don't have to pay them. Yeah. Start them while they're young. Yeah, yep. right. I imagine yeah. that's how most of it happens. It's like they're out in the vineyard as kids running around having a good time and they just grow up into it for the most part. Drinking at 12 and 13, probably. <laughs> right. Hopefully. I Not mean, drinking, but working. Well, yeah, <laughs> so they say. <laughs> so this first one that we're actually, we'll go through some of your wines is the uh, Sauvignon Blanc. So is this two different wines? We have Catalea and Alma de Catalea. Correct. But they're two different styles, obviously. Yeah, so I started Catalea wines in 2011 with only one barrel. So I made oh, wow. 25 cases of the 2011 vintage from a vineyard that is farmed by my in-law family, the Pisoni family in the Santa Lucia Highlands, which is a vineyard named Soberanes Vineyard. And after that, I grew Catrella to be single origin, really exclusive, uh, collectible, small production wine. So we normally make between 100 to 300 cases of each wine. And in 2014, I got approached by my distributor in California who wanted me to bring a line of wines that was a little bit more approachable and a price point, but it's still being made at really, really high standards. Yeah. So we make all the wines at the winery, and really the purpose with Alma Wine is that you can drink a wine that is very honest, um, really well-made, but that you can afford every day. So the Alma de Catrella wines are between $20 and $30 a bottle, why the Catrella wines start 55 to $200 a bottle. So it's just a very different price point, and we can talk a lot about what defines that price point, but it really has a lot to do with the price of the grapes yeah. and the quality and the concentration of the grapes um, and kind of what we are trying to showcase. So yeah. I love making both. It, it, it is fun when you get it options too, and especially with you know your pedigree, you get the options of having fantastic grapes so like when i was doing the arizona winemaking we had like options of you know oh yeah come buy our you know 500 a ton nonsense in central coast and like cool we'll make <laughs> junk wine and sangria based stuff is great but every once in a while a vineyard would pop up and like hey we have an extra ton it's like yes i want those specific grapes so for these do you own your vineyard or are you sourcing from certain places? So I buy all my fruit. So I don't have any estate vineyard. I don't own any land. Um, it's all small contracts that for Catrella are very specific to an area in the vineyard. So it's these three rows go always to Catrella every year. And then for Alma, we are a bit more flexible. So it's like I'm more open to new projects, new vineyards, growers that I know that will have fruit at the end of the season that they couldn't sell. So I go ahead and I buy it at a better price. So <laughs> yeah. uh, it's a little bit of being opportunistic, but also having a baseline of, of some vineyards that I always work with. That's great. I love the back of this. I was born in Colombia. What, where was, so you're in Colombia. What got you into wine? Yeah. So, I mean, I was joking, but I definitely grew up on the Pablo Escobar era. So the 80s and the 90s in Colombia were, you know, I, I know so many people said, I really wanted to go to Colombia, but 
it's still so dangerous even today. I'm like, well, Colombia has changed, but um, yeah, it's really, it's really bizarre that I wanted to make wine. I started to tell people at the age of 14 that I wanted to make wine out of the blue. I just start saying, I want to make wine when I grow up. And your family's and, looking at you like, what? Yeah, and everyone's like, oh, that's so cute. And we don't even know <laughs> what's wine and how wine tastes or yeah. what that means. They do that thing, they shake their head, smile at you, turn away and just shake like, I don't know, whatever. Right, <laughs> right. So I kept saying it for a while and I studied chemical engineering for two years in Colombia, trying to get into the chemistry of wine or trying to understand organic chemistry. But I realized I was not going to learn how to make wine. <laughs> Uh, doing that. So I moved into business administration, so management, and I did two years of college of management so I could become the CEO of a winery. And then after that, I just say, you know, this is not what I want to do. I really wanted to make wine, like truly like be the person that is crafting this product, that is transforming grapes into wine. And I think that my fascination was the same reason why people drink wine. And it's, you know, we all take this bottle of wine and you are like, you are capturing a time, a year, a place, and the soul of the people that are making those wines. Because when you buy small producers or like beer or like anything that you use in life or consuming life, when it's small and it's truly handcrafted, you really are having a part of that person on, on that taste. So I was really fascinated by that, and obviously I went to France, so it was not disappointing at all. Um, I really got to taste that wineries where I wouldn't, I would blindly know vintages, producer, Ludi, everything. That's really cool. Um, yeah, she's pretty awesome. Yeah, so we started with the Sauve Blanc that you have here right. from Alma. I'm gonna just break it down to Alma. What, um, where is exactly these grapes coming from? Yeah, so the Alma de Catrella. So we we call the appellation Sonoma County. So appellation means where the wine is made. So it's very important in wine. And it's kind of uh, appealing to the terroir or the site where the wine is made. Uh, we use Sonoma County to have more flexibility for the growth of the brand, but I love the coast. So I actually only use grapes from really all the areas in Sonoma that are inside the Sonoma Coast larger AVA. So we have grapes from Annapolis for Rossi View AVA, Russian River, Carneros, uh, Petaluma Gap. And in the Sauvignon Blanc is mainly Russian River, which is one of the premium places to produce Sauvignon Blanc, I so, think. So obviously being in France, you got to drink some like nice Sancerre and stuff like oh, that. Yeah. Do you like that way those are done versus Russian River? You think Russian River is better? Ah, a putting, her to the, putting her to the <laughs> test. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you got the knowledge of all the regions at this point. Yeah, well, I... But we can I, remove New Zealand just from this conversation. Oh, <laughs> That's mean, but uh, <laughs> my husband and I, we also make a very small project. It's dedicated 100% to Sauvignon Blanc, and it's called Chair Notes. And for that one, we are really making very high-end, much more expensive Sauvignon Blanc, 100% fermented on new oak, French oak barrels, and it's really inspiring French wine. So one of the wines is more a Pesac Réunion, which is an appellation in Bordeaux, and the other one is really, really, truly a Sancerre. And when I say, like, what do I think about this wine? Is it better than Sancerre or Russian River? Um, I'm a big Sancerre and white Bordeaux fan when the producer is the right producer, yeah. so not just the massive production. And I think it's the same for everything you consume. So I think Russian River is really beautiful. I would say something that I criticize a little bit about Californian Sauvignon Blancs, which is a very personal taste, is that a lot of them have a lot of residual sugar. 
Yeah. And I don't enjoy that. So I would say if you don't know anything about wines and you don't know about the producers, if you want a dry Sauvignon Blanc, Sancerre is always going to deliver that to you. But the Alma de Catrella wines, and Catrella wines are super dry, uh, so very low sugar in, in the wine. Yeah, it's, it's definitely something we see often when we're sitting here tasting through a lot of people. Is, I don't even remember what it was the other day, but somebody poured us something, and it was sweet. It wasn't sweet. They said it was sweet to us. on it. Yeah. Because, I mean, him and I both love high-acid wines. Yeah. A lot so of Italians. This is that. Yeah. No, the Sauvignon Blanc's fantastic. I like the way this is. I like that crisp, clean style. It's not overpowering in grapefruit, which we've had a few where it's straight grapefruit. Like, it's if you like that, it's great. It's refreshing out here, but it was different. And that, that one wine came in. I was just thinking to myself, why is this sweet? Because I think it was a red. I don't remember which one it was at that point. But I just like it's something we notice more and more. I had a gentleman earlier, literally like a few hours before. He goes, I really love Pinot Noir. I'm a big French Pinot Noir. I love Burgundy. Uh, I've shifted away towards doing like clubs. So he did the, the Naked Wine Club, the Wall Street Journal Club. And he's like, you know, it's I like trying small producers and I like to support these things. But this was a mistake. And I'm like, all right. Yeah, I get it. And he goes, I can't find any burgundy california pinots and i I was trying to you know guide him through a lot of things because i did an italian wine tasting a few weeks ago and he goes i've never had wines like from italy i pretty much just drink french wine and he says i don't drink a lot of california with the exception of zinfandel i love big jammy in your face things which totally threw me off guard but he goes, everything I have in California is just, you know, big and it almost tastes sweet. And I'm like, all right, well, what brands are you drinking? And he started naming off all the big guys. And I was like, well, yeah, that's kind of why. So, you know, we tried all of yours. We went through some of the ones we had. I think I had a Barbera back there, which he loved. But he goes, oh, I, I didn't realize like things like this get made. I was like, well, you got to try. Like, yeah. clearly, if you set a goal being like, I need French wines like this, and you immediately jump into California wines, your palate's going to get a crazy shock to it. Yeah, no, I think that what you are doing is so important. I, I think that people start by trusting the place where they go to buy their wines. Yep. And, you know, you start telling people what kind of wines you like. And then they taste and say, like, oh, this is exactly the type of wine that I want. And then they start trusting that your selection has a purpose. And I really feel like that is one of the most important things that anybody trying to learn about wine needs to find is going to places where you can try a lot of wines, experience wine by yourself, but being guided by somebody that is explaining that to you. It, it helps to get outside the box. You know, especially as you probably see in America, every wine this has the same six grapes. It's Cabernet, Merlot, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and there's so much fun stuff out there. Um, part of our goal is to actually open up the uh, you know public's eyes to all these other fun grape varietals or other fun styles. People that say, oh, I don't like California Sauvignon Blanc because it tends to be so sweet. Right. There's plenty of them out there that are not and are done beautifully. But you have to find somebody that's that knows their wines, that you trust, that you can go in and talk to to kind of guide them down that path. Yeah, yeah. it's not like beer. You know, you can experiment with beer all day long. You could spend $50 and need an Uber home <laughs> versus if you spend $50, you might just be buying one or two bottles. And then if you don't like that sip, well, you're like, oh, man, I just wasted $25 on a bottle. Right. So besides your wines, when you're uh, drinking wine, what do you like to drink? Oh, boy. Well, I'm a, <laughs> I'm a Francophile because okay. I was trained in France, so I was brainwashed to believe that nothing out of France <laughs> 
could be even worth to put in your mouth. So for a long time, I would only drink French wines. Okay, that sounds that, terrible. That, but that's, but a, that's a broad spectrum. Right. So let's narrow this down. So I drink a lot of French wines. I love... Uh, Burgundy, Bordeaux, well, I don't Loire. Drink, well, I gotta say, I don't drink that much Burgundy because you have to pay a lot of money to start being satisfied yeah. when you mm -hmm. know about Pinot Noir. So I unfortunately don't drink as much Burgundy red as I would want to. I love the Valet du Rhone, so I drink a lot of Syrah wines. I'm a big Cotroti fan, except that now they're becoming very expensive too. Uh, I love Sancerre. I love Pesac Lognon White, so really well-made Sauvignon Blancs. Um, I'm a big Bordeaux fan. I love champagne, so every yeah. time I can drink bubbles. We all agree on that one. <laughs> I do that. Uh, but I really like Riesling from Germany a lot, so I'm a Super, super big fan of Rieslings. I love Gruners from Austri Austria. Um, I do not drink that much South, South American wines, uh, which, oh, they will kill me because I'm from South America. <laughs> um, I work in South Africa for three years, and I love drinking wine in South Africa, but I feel it's, it's really hard to find. What comes out here is so yeah. not great. <laughs> yeah, so I think that if you go to South Africa and you're drinking wine for a whole week, you'll be like, my gosh, South Africa produces so many great wines. But it's very hard to get all of those wines here on the market. It's always funny to see, we've asked this question to a couple winemakers and other friends in the business, and Riesling is one of those things that always comes up. But a lot of people are almost embarrassed to say they drink Riesling, but wine professionals are like, hell yeah, yeah I love like great dry Riesling, oh, aged Riesling. Beautiful. We, uh, my dad came, he just came back from Germany. He just did the Danube River with his girlfriend, Rosemary, and she sat there. And so I was like, so I, what does she think? She only drinks Saw Blanc. So I'm excited to try this. She buys the Ned New Zealand. It's, that's it. She will not brand. She'll try, but she oh, does, oh, yeah, cool, thanks, whatever. So he came back and goes, have you ever had Grunner Vettler? I'm like, nope. <laughs> nope, try again. He's like, what do you mean? I was like, it's Grunner Vettliner. And then I'm not saying it all the way. And he goes, yeah, we drank a lot of that. And I said, did you try anything else? He goes, whatever white wines they're doing on that river are amazing. I said, well, it's probably Riesling. And I think in his mind, he was expecting, but they weren't sweet. I was like, yeah, yeah. I know, but they're still amazing. Yeah. So we have a new thing for hey, Rosemary. We, we, I've said before that people's wine profession start and end with Riesling. Yeah. It's one of the first things you drink, and once you dove through every other wine, you just want to go back to Riesling a lot of times. Yeah, I bastardized Riesling. I used to make a Riesling, but I also filtered it through green apples. So, oh, what? Yeah, you filtered it, it through green apples? adult apple juice. It oh. was That's my bill-paying wine. <laughs> wow. No, but then I think it was, it was either you or actually it was Todd from Atlas. He poured me a dry Riesling one time that was... I don't know, 20 years old one night when I was at AZ Wines, and I just couldn't believe how fresh that was for being a 20-year-old bottle. That night when we opened up the um, uh, Donhoff 2004. Yeah. the mm. In the house. I mean, I love Donhoff. It was yeah. the gold cap, the, the Herman Chalet. Wow. And that was, that, that's, that's it, we joke that we know it's a good wine when he doesn't say anything, and he was just silent for like two yeah. minutes. <laughs> yeah, usually can't say, shut me up, so. I always say that to people, like, if I have to list my top five or ten wines, are wines that I could not say anything about the wine for, like, minutes. Yeah. Because you're, like, <gasps> inside your body, you're, like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. Like, this is just unbelievable. And you just don't even know how to express what you are feeling, which, for me, that's, like, the dream with any wine experience is when you find those wines that you really have such a physical relationship with that tasting and that takes away all your words so yeah we really can remember a few of them too one of the first times he poured me a really really good barolo i was like oh my 
God, I love this wine. And then it was a Barbaresco. I was like, oh my God, I love this grape. And then so I became obsessed with Nebbiolo. Uh-oh. And it wasn't until, I don't know, maybe... Uh, maybe a year ago, I had my first real true Burgundy. I've never had anything beyond like the stuff you get at a basic giant shop, so I have no idea the the really high end stuff. Mm. But somebody was at, again at Atlas pouring a Montrachet. He goes, "I have a bunch of this extra. You want it?" I was like, "Sure, I'll try it." And I remember sitting there just drinking it. And he's like, "What do you think?" I'm like, "You could just go away. I'm not gonna have an answer for you for ten minutes. This is unbelievably yeah. good because I That's didn't think it. Chardonnay could taste like that." Yeah, it's just so expensive. To yeah. be able to taste those unbelievable Burgundy wines, today's you are paying six hundred to a thousand to two thousand dollars a bottle. That's crazy. Um, In the last ten years, it's gotten crazy. Yeah, yeah. And it just keeps going up and up and up. Which is perfect because then you know you've got this right? Chardonnay, this Almuck Chardonnay for twenty four six dollars a bottle, and this is very nice. Thank so you. So, what do you do with this one? So or how do you treat this one? All the Alma wines are fermented and aged on the French oak, but it's barrels that have been used before. So I really believe that aging these wines on the small vessels on the lees really gives you this reductive character, but this intensity and concentration and texture on the wine, especially because my wines are so dry. So by definition, these wines have zero grams per liter of sugar. So you really want to bring a texture or aspect to the wine and aging on the oak is really going to help to do that plus the wines don't get oxidized so these wines are really aged on a protective way from oxygen um, the chardonnay is a blend about seven different vineyards a lot of all went to clans so we winemakers love to talk about clans on the chardonnay <laughs> and the pinot noir world which is silly uh, but we kind of have an expectation of what that clown is going to give to the wine. So when people talk about Orwente, you already know it's very, very tiny berries. It's going to be a lot of concentration on that pulp from the skins. So there's not so much juice. So whatever is on the skins and on the pulp, it's really going to go to a less amount of juice. And that concentration is perceptible on the wine. So I really like to work as much as I can with vineyards that are planted on Orwente. Uh, still a very small production. We only made 700 cases of that wine. So it really is like super intense. Uh, it has a little bit of stony notes, but it has floral notes and some citrus. And it has a lot of acid, which I love it's on my nice. wines. I, I really like wines that are going to be great for food, that are very food friendly, that are never really being this flat or heavy wine at the table, but a wine that you open and you're drinking and you don't realize, and then you put the your salad or your main course, and you're like, whoa, like, you know, like where everything can just really enhance. It's nice, too, because, you know, obviously I can get the oak on that one, but it still allows for some of the grape flavors to actually come Mm -hmm. out versus, you know, some of these big chains. We joke, I mean, this is your second time in Arizona, but if you take this road right here, Scottsdale, and start here and drive 30 minutes north, you'll see more and more Rombauer on the menu, and then all of a sudden it gets by the glass by the menu as you go north of here. (laughs) It's old old generations who love that super... Oh, do you just have straight vanilla and popcorn? Well, yeah, here's this wine. Which is okay. You know, like if that is what they like and it's their comfort zone, I also feel like, um, I mean, that's great. It's just a generation also, right? I feel like people today is so much into what they cook, what they taste, how it tastes, and how everything combines at the table that is giving so much place to very different nuances on the wines. So, you know, there's always a place for, for those 
or generation. That's, uh, that's one thing that we do like to kind of do is even though we geek out about our wines and stuff, we'll never tell anybody what they're drinking is wrong. We may right. poke fun of it, but in the end, I mean, like I said, I made a green apple Riesling and it was so popular. I followed up with the blueberry Pinot and then a <laughs> strawberry. It's like people just love to drink it. And you know what happens after a year? They come back and go, I want something real now to drink. And they go, okay, cool. Well, let's get you into something better. So the next wine that you are putting on your glass is the Cuban number five. So for Catrella wines, as I was mentioning, we are very focused on terroir-driven, single vineyard wines, small productions. And for the Cuban number five, we use two vineyards at very high elevation. So we are looking for vineyards above 900 feet elevation, where the ocean is really influencing the temperatures in the morning. Where is you that get from the breeze coming in or the fog? The fog and the breeze and just the cooling temperature from the high elevation. So you get the fog sometimes even until 11 a.m. or noon during the harvest, the maturation uh, season. And then you have really beautiful afternoons where the vineyard is definitely going to ripe. That's not going to be a problem. But you really have this cooling effect that prolongs the um, or uh, extend the maturation process, which is very important to preserve acidity on wine. So does this place that you get this from, does the fog actually cover the grapes or does it just get close enough so it gets more sun? And allows oh, no. All... Like you are walking on the fog in the morning. Yeah, yeah you are cool. wet. Like you get wet on your pants and your shoes or your boots if you are walking really early yeah. in the morning or during the day. And then it dries out. So I it's always you... love. I, I take, you know, beyond like some family, I take friends. And I've done a couple tours through Napa. And if you catch that right morning where you're just sitting there and if you get high enough, you, it looks like an Avatar movie oh, where you're yeah, above the fog yeah, line yeah. and just like, yeah. And you could slowly see it pulling back and yeah. the hot air rolling down is nice. Yeah, yeah. But with this one, why number five? Fifth attempt or? No, so well, number five was the fifth wine that I made under the Catrella label. But yeah, I'm a big fan of Coco Chanel. And as you know, <laughs> in the wine industry, we cannot wear perfume because everybody is yeah. like, are they smelling your wine or are they smelling your perfume? So I used to do perfume until I started making wines. So I cannot wear I, perfume. I just feel so bad. So I did, a, <laughs> I did a wine tasting a while ago and it was up in North Scottsdale. And my crowd was, you know, in their 50s and 60s. And there was another group, so I had three tables, eight at each table, and this one lady came walking in, and so I was like, no! So perfume! I know. I could smell her before the door had opened, and it was so potent. She's like, I'm looking forward to this. I was like, shit, <laughs> I'm going to put you at the far table. Your perfume is so overpowering. I know. I'm going to tell you, like, the, the most intimidating story I had about perfume. So I was still wearing perfume when I was studying winemaking in France. And when I was at the University of Bordeaux, I did my internship for six months at Chateaubriand and La Mission Aubriand, which are two very, very famous yeah. wineries, probably one of the top ten, two of the top ten in the world. So I, I apologize. You said this is where you started? I did an internship, oh, internship. Okay. for six months. Yeah. So I worked with them through Harvest and I did my thesis with them. So I was really like from July to February. So it was even more than six months. So we were tasting the wines after the alcoholic fermentation was finished because Aubryon is one of the only houses that blend their wines before malolactic fermentation. So they really made their decisions on the blending before the secondary fermentation happens, which nobody does that. It's really only Aubryon that has always done that. It's just their philosophy. So we are all gathering, all the interns and the, the team, the cellar team, the winemaking team, tasting each tank. So it was the winemaker and then the team and all of us with him. So every time we go to a tank, you get close to the spur where the wine is, gets out of the tank. 
And the first time we go, I, I got next to the winemaker and I'm putting my, my glass and he looked at me and he said like, Viviana, you're wearing perfume. I'm like, uh, yes. And he looked at me and said, don't do that ever again. <laughs> <laughs> and since that day, so I was like, what, 20, 21? You got your hand slapped on that one. And <laughs> since that day, I never, ever again wear perfume in my life. And sometimes I just really want to do it. Yeah. Like, I'm just like, I just want to do it. And even like one or two times I did it. You go to this dinner with a sommelier, ask you to open a bottle of wine. You have to go to a table and you are like so intimidated thinking that everybody just kind of smell your perfume and not the wine that you're pouring for them. So... We I had a we had I somebody call earlier. Uh, they actually asked what dress etiquette was tonight, oh. and I, I, I Tina was looking at me, our, our bartender. She was like, "I I don't know what to say." I was like, "Casual." Uh, you like, have you have to wear uh, pants. Yeah, at least at <laughs> like, minimum, at know, least like, wear pants. Like, <laughs> yeah, pants and shirt. <laughs> but, yeah, no naked people here. <laughs> it's funny. Yeah, the etiquette of drinking wine is like it, most people don't realize it. I can't I tell you how many times I've done it with oh. Sarah. We've gone to Alice and she'll. Because she'll spray herself down with something else. It's like, ah, not tonight. <laughs> Don't do it. It's it's just a thing. Yeah. Th there's an account here in town that if you go in there with any sort of perfume or cologne on, she'll throw you out instantly. Wow. And oh, I'll ask I, you later. I, I, I was at an appointment, and these two Italian gentlemen showed up just laughing. And I was like, what's so funny? And they literally were like, uh, we just got thrown out of an account. He's like, I'm not even wearing cologne. He's like, it was the like the soap from the morning shower. No way. And she threw him out. Wow. <laughs> She's oh. so particular. I think I know who you're talking about. Yeah, now. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that core was not broken, so you can't. Well, go. it is now. <laughs> you can go all the way down with that one. one. I see that. He's already lost your wine key. I already lost a cork. Oh, no, I got no. the wine key. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. I just don't know where the cork is. Oh, those, these, are, those, these are going to get poured anyway. The little, the little shorty? Yeah. Oh, there you go. Perfect. If you want to throw it in that one. Yeah, it's. Uh, it, it's that's a very interesting to address. Uh, these, hey, these two Italian guys were just tonight. shocked that they got thrown out of the account. That is crazy. And it was like first, it was like an early morning appointment, but I get it. We have one lady that comes in here too. She's like 116 years old. Yeah, I love this lady. And, I and hope yeah, she she's comes she's awesome. She wears everything's color coordinated. A giant bonnet every time she comes in. Her oh bonnet's bigger than her. Oh yeah, she's like this tall. Oh my god. And but she wears so much perfume, you could smell it like outside around the building. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and at least it's not offensive. You know, some people will come in wearing something, and you're like, oh god, no. Like if it's at least a little floral, you can get away with it. Yeah. But there's one girl who came in here too, same sweet. thing. It smells like strawberry. Yeah, Just, when it's sweet and yeah. vanilla like. It's like oh, strip club mm -hmm. perfume at this point. <laughs> so we talked a little about one of your favorite wines to drink. What's your favorite wine to make? Oh boy, that's such a difficult question. I, I know, that's why I ask it. <laughs> I love making all the wines. Like they're all your children, I know, but there's still one that you like better than the other. Well, I just think that the <laughs> we'll most Oh, they're too young. They won't listen to this. I would say the most money you pay per ton, the more nerve wracking it is to make a wine. So I feel like with Catrella wines, we are really buying very expensive grapes so we are really focused on that 10 percentile of the high quality production in california so i feel like when i get when i get those grapes i'm really i'm like intellectually pushing myself all the time to make something really good so i feel like the more you are pushing yourself and being focused on the process the more your expectation is on that wine um so I think it's very difficult to answer. Like, I love Syrah. I'm a big fan of Syrah. So I make my Syrah the same way I would make the single barrel Paul Meyer, $400 a bottle. 
Uh, gets all the love and attention. Yeah, and I would do it like on 100% new oak, uh, oak that is dry for five years. So I know that all the elements on that wine are making something really special. So I have a high expectation for those wines. And I really love to taste them when they get old, and I really like to follow them. But at the same time, I get a huge um, emotion when I make a $27 bottle of wine that everybody's raving about, that people say, my gosh, I want cases of these. Critics will give it like 93 points, 92 points. And you're like, really? I mean, did I price it right? Because it's only $22 or $27. So I think that when you make those kinds of wines that you might think it's easier to make. They are not that easy to make right. Um, I feel like Chardonnay is a very difficult varietal to make, to, to take an emotion into that glass of wine, to not make just a simple wine that people are just sipping and drinking. Um, so when you make some of those, so I, I don't know, I have made Chardonnays that I am like, I cannot believe I made that wine because I know it's, I don't know, the acidity, the texture, the, the, the taste, the aging of the wine. So I, I just cannot choose one. And I really think vintages, I allow myself to experience with vintages. So there is not a formula. I'm not trying to do the same thing all the time. Like talking about 2021, the vintage is going to be amazing in California. The red wines are spectacular. The color, like I will show you a video. It's ridiculous. Like yeah, people is going to be like, you had to put Syrah or Cabernet Sauvignon on your Pinot Noir because it's so dark. The concentration is huge. The aromatics were amazing. And I was like, I cannot believe I'm making these wines. So you have a lot of expectation for those wines. And I'm tasting them in barrel. I have never started tasting in barrel so early. But I'm just so excited yeah, about this I, vintage. I can tell you're excited. You're almost like yeah. jumping out of the chair right oh now. It's my awesome. Gosh. What, it's, uh, you can like see it all around you. So <laughs> I don't so know. Excited. Do you have a particular one you want to pour first? Do you want to do the Pinots or go the red wine? You can do the pin, the Alma Pinot first. Um, I think it's the, um, on, on concentration, is the lighter wine. Um, I'm going to show you a video. People won't be able to see the video. But uh, I mean, that's just a picture. This is Pinot Noir getting out of the tank this year. And I just couldn't believe, look at that color. This is not filters on it. It's That's unbelievable. That's really rich looking. It's funny too, because nobody else has an idea, but it's pretty spectacular. And then you're smelling that and you look and you're like, how can I be gifted this? You know, it's just so special. And this is going to be my 26th harvest. And I still get very excited. Um, Maybe people can hear the video. They're definitely going to hear the emotion in it. But yeah, it's it's. So, what's been the most difficult vintage then? If this is going to be one of your favorites, would have been in the 2011 one that everybody talks about, or being that you're French or you do around all the French stuff, you're like, ah, oh, this is going to be just fine. Well, when I was in France, I gotta say, 2000 was amazing in Bordeaux, and I remember those wines like if I taste them yesterday. 2005 was fantastic in Bordeaux. Um, I would say for California, 2009 was a brilliant year. 2013 was amazing tannins. So I really like that muscular aspect of all the wines. But I don't know. I think 2021 for me, I mean, it's just so early to talk and the wines are not sulfur and it's not all, all safe. But I don't know. I might put 2021 on my... Maybe on my top. Right. Maybe, maybe. I don't know. It's hard to say. <laughs> so for this one, then, the what the the Pinot Noir, which one, how are you doing this one up? 
Um, or in this case, the alma de Catrella. Yes. So for the Catrella. alma de Catrella, we do, and for anybody that sees the label, um, you can separate the word on cat and leia. So it's Catrella. And uh, the 2018 was a very volume, soft tan and texture wine. So it's so easy to drink. It's a very soft wine. It still has great acidity. We ferment everything on individual tanks. So it's all stainless steel fermentation. We don't have automatic punch downs, so it's all by hand punch downs. We do change it depending on the quality of the grapes or if we do whole cluster or not whole cluster uh, to how many punch downs we do on the peak of the fermentation. And then we just edge it on French oak, only French oak. I don't use any American oak. Um, and it's all neutral oak, so barrels that have been used before and up to 10, 12 years. Yeah, and then um, do you ever take any like of your wine, just sit there and look at a barrel and go, this is too good. I'm going to somehow find a way and keep all these cases for myself. <laughs> so we do We do try to keep inventory, but then I get somebody say like, oh, Bibiana, can we get like 10 more cases, please, like for a market yeah. or an export? So we export now to like about seven different countries. And you always find somebody uh, I ask, that takes is it in Colombia? So we were exporting to Colombia for about six years. And we stopped during the pandemic. Uh, that's too bad. Yeah, so not only Colombia tax wines extremely high, so it's a little bit like Canada, like taxes are so ridiculously high that people is probably paying more for taxes than for wine. Dang. Which is really sad. Yeah. I mean, people here underestimate how lucky we are and the amount of wine that we can drink and that we are always paying the fair price in the U.S. for the wines we drink. Um, so we were there, but, and actually we partnered with an importer. So we became importers for six years with that partner. And then we, which is not a good business. So we stopped. That's too bad. It's yeah. like, it's your hometown too. Like I know. I know. I really want it so bad. The other famous person of Medellin. <laughs> but you know, like you are paying $30 for this bottle of Pinot Noir here. They will be paying $120 for that bottle of wine at the store. Oh my God. So... In a way, it's no fair, right? I mean, you are paying so much money on taxes, not really on the wine. Yeah. It's just hard. It just doesn't pin down. That's too bad. Yeah. So we have, obviously, the Pinots and the blends. Is there a, Are you going to branch and do some more obscure varietals out of Russian River, or are you just going to kind of stick with the Chardonnay, Sauv Blanc, Pinot? And I, I saw you had a cab as well. <laughs> yeah, so I make a Syrah from the Santa Lucia Highlands that you have tasted before. Yeah. Uh, so I will continue to make Syrah. I actually brought a um, suitcase crown in 2011 <laughs> uh, that I got to plant at my husband's vineyard, the Pisoni Ranch in the Santa Lucia Highlands. So we have been developing that for 10 years now, and we still only got 0.58 tons, Dang. which is nothing. So it's not even a, a ton of fruit. Do you guys have competitions with each other? Like, ha, I sold all my wine before you, or my wine got rated better than yours, and you sit there and laugh at each other? We don't. We don't. I mean, I, as I mentioned, I and you have some of the wood cases from Pisoni, but I'm married to Jeff, so they have one of the most uh, recognizable Grand Cruz of Pinot Noir in California. So it's not like you can compete with that that easily. Uh, and I'm never going to buy fruit from them. So his dad, Gary... Pisoni always says, so daughter-in-law, when are you going to buy fruit from us to make <laughs> Pinot Noir? I'm like, Gary, do you think that I'm that dumb that I'm going to buy two tons of fruit to combine to compete with Jeff that gets every single blog he wants? And he's like <laughs> doing this super complex blend. 
Um, yeah, why, why bother making it yeah. when he can make it and you can drink it? Yeah, and when he makes an, a fantastic job. I mean, Jeff is an amazing winemaker, and their fruit is just unbelievable. You said something a little bit ago that maybe some of the listeners might not know what it is, or John might not even have picked up on it, but the term suitcase clone. Uh-huh. Um, I know a lot of producers have done this over the years where, you know, they might take a little clipping and bring it back or, you know, something they've smuggled across the border from <laughs> France or Bordeaux or something like that. So how did I do it? Is that the question? <laughs> no, I'm just, I don't think a lot of people know what that is even. Yeah. You know, the term of, you know, being able to grab a little clone and bring it back and plant it in your vineyard and then duplicate it. And that's where a lot of the fun stuff we have in America came here because of suitcase clones. Yeah, so normally when you plant plants materials, um, a country wants to be sure that it is clean from viruses and disease or that you are not bringing bad stuff to a country. So obviously I'm very thoughtful of that and I'm very respectful of that. Um, I worked in Cotroti uh, 20 years ago and I became really good friends with some of the growers. And I was part of a conservatory, which means that we would go to all the vineyards that had vines older than 100 years old. And for a period of three years, they were studying the morphology of the plants, so how the leaves look, the, the clusters, the taste of the grapes, and the wines that were made from those areas. So when I was part of that study, I really became very fascinated with older vines that are really like have not been touched, have not been propagated, have not been clean, but that are very clean because they continue to produce. So they haven't been affected by a virus because they are still producing and they were healthy. So we would know there is no red blush, which is a virus. They would look green. You know, they were not really having any symptomatic um, visual responses to virus. So one of the growers that is a very good friend of mine uh, propagates for his own vineyards. So he has done it forever. His family has always take from the older vines. They develop them. They, they get the cuttings. So you get pieces of wood that then you can graft with the American vinifera. And then they plant it, right? So they did that for me. They didn't connect it to an American vine. So it's just the the suitcase clone of Syrah. So they actually call it La Serene Noir, which is a pre-selection or clean material. That's okay. fine, because I've always heard the suitcase clone for Pinot. Did not know there was one for Syrah. Yeah. I think visually, in my mind, I picture like an old man in a fedora carrying a suitcase, like literally walking through an airport with it stuffed in there. Yeah. So what, I, what we did is we just put them on my carry-on bag, and we did like a centerpiece arrangement that looked like if somebody that made... That is so awesome. I, <laughs> I love these stories. Yeah. And now you have an entire vineyard of it or so slowly right growing now, it? I have one third of an acre. Okay. Uh, Mark Pisoni is my grower, so he really takes care of it. And we just keep trying to get more material to grow the planting. But I think next year, maybe I will get one ton finally. So which, you can actually make some wine from it now. I know. Like, That's I'm only really cool. making like. I just estimated we have two punchons, so we are doing hand punch down, and we are estimated to get 44 gallons from each punchon, but I already know I'm going to lose like 15% of it from the pressed juice, so I'm only going to get 60 gallons. So I'm only going to get 25 cases, 300 bottles. You're probably going to want these yourself. <laughs> hey, all of a sudden, you have some big parties, and oh, we right. drank all of it. Hey, it's just the way you started with 25 cases. Exactly. 
You know, is this it? Is it planted in Sonoma or did you plant down Santa Lucia? It's at the Pisoni Vineyard, so okay, it's cool. in the so Santa Lucia Highlands. Oh yeah, yeah. Mark is everything. He's one of the best vineyard managers in California. He's absolutely talented. That, that, uh, Brother-in-law or brother-in-law, yeah, brother-in-law. that's not okay. my husband. Yeah, totally yeah. not just bro. Yeah, and not, my family. Not biased. So <laughs> not biased. <laughs> not one little bit. So this is the the one we just poured is the uh, the Pinot Noir, the Cuvée number one. So obviously, is this another perfume-based one? Yeah. Well, the Cuvée one was the first wine. Okay. So it was really like the first wine that I made after that I had to really go and start the Appellation series. So the intention was to buy vineyards that you can blend and that you can make a really re- good representation of the Russian River uh, quality. So this is a blend of two vineyards from Green Valley, which is an area that I love inside the Russian River Valley, and uh, the Santa Rosa Plain, which is still on the west side of the Russian River. So it's not on the east side. So uh, closer to Santa Rosa? Yeah, so it's closer to Santa Rosa, and it's a really it's much cooler than actually than West Side Road area. Um, but yeah, the I, I really like the, that area. I think that you can have really great aromatics and really good ripe fruit without being overripe or or too much of the collab. Um, Right. Do you ever like get to go to like certain vineyards and be like, all right, I want to try some of your grapes. Like, can I get X amount and just experiment with them and be like, oh, this isn't the way I wanted this to turn out. Thanks. Uh, see you later. Yeah, I don't think that that is really a possibility to just uh, you have to pay to experiment. Yeah. Uh, but I have like I was for three years looking at a lot of vineyards and having really high expectations and buying the fruit and declassifying it, which is a big loss for me. But. You know, you go with an expectation, you think it's going to make it into a $60, $80 a bottle, but it's not delivering that quality to you, even if you pay that price. So that would make Arma de Catrella wines spectacular, but it would yeah. not make my pocket really. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's what a lot of people don't expect. Is sometimes all of a sudden yeah. you're like, oh, I'm going to make this my reserve wine. This is going to be my single barrel. And then you taste it, go, shit. Mm-hmm. Oh, I guess it's not going to be it this year. Yeah. And then it's just all about do you have that honesty to yourself and can you really make those decisions and those decisions are really hard because I don't know I didn't mention it but I'm a sole proprietor I don't have investors it's really 100% my business I'm the vineyard manager for the winery I'm the winemaker I am here talking with you about my wines which means I'm the salesperson for my wines <laughs> yeah. ambassador um, and, and I'm the business wine, manager in my case wine tasting <laughs> She's like I'm the janitor also I yeah. do the cleanup I do the the maintenance work yeah <laughs> if so, the tank goes it's my fault so you know it, it's really hard like every time I taste a barrel and I like I declassify like a thousand five hundred gallons of Chardonnay in 2019 which made the That's Alma hot, Chardonnay yeah. amazing but even my husband was like, why you are you doing that? The wine is amazing. Why are you are doing that? I'm like, well, because I just don't think it's at the level of Catrella brand. I was like, you are, and he was so right. I declassified, I put an Alma, and everybody was like, this wine tastes like a $60 Chardonnay. Oh. And every single time somebody said that to me, I was like, I made <laughs> such a big mistake. Like on that, I really think Jeff was 100% right. And I was just really on a fantasy world of trying to make these wines that are just perfect all the time. But it was not a financial good decision. So, you know. Yeah, uh, you set the bar real learn. high for yourself. But at least you now kind of know. You learn. You learn. Yeah, it's important to do that classification. And, and I, I still today declassify barrels. 
but to declassify that much because that vinegar was not what I wanted um, was a little bit too much. So I, I know a lot about European taxes and the way stuff works kind of over there. When you say declassify, or is it just you putting it into your uh, more affordably priced barrel, or is it actually with the Americans? Are you paying a different level of taxes on your higher end stuff no. ahead of the time? No. So all it means is. So it'd be like if you are a chef or if you are making sushi, right? And they get this beautiful sushi toro or the tuna and the different levels of the tuna, right? And there is the heart of the tuna that is going to be the toro, right? And which is super, super expensive. <laughs> I love. Yeah. Um, and then you have all the other parts of the tuna. Or you have a tuna that was not as good or fresh or the quality that the chef wanted. So they are not going to sell it as a toro, right? Yeah, that would go into the, the spicy tuna. They chop it up and do it in something like that. Right. But what we do with wine... I did wine, not know that. Yes. Is that really how that works? All the scraps go into the spicy tuna. Oh, God. I eat so <laughs> much spicy tuna. That's why, they di that's why they dice it all up. Am I that's eating all the McDonald's of sushi at this yeah, point? That, that's, oh. like, that's the cat know, food of sushi. It's still real. It's still real. They no, that's why I also soak it in soy sauce, <laughs> too. Yeah, when you're done cutting all the good pieces off, those that oh. scraps get diced up and... Is it like the chuck roast? Of, oh, my uh, God. Yeah. It's scraps. Oh, chef are going to kill me right Dude, now. Dude, I just had an entire epiphany of dumpster just dropped onto me. I had no... I just assume oh, they're like, no. oh, they marinated in oh, something. No. So it. anyway, what you do is let's say that I have a tank of wine and we drain it. Drain means not dump it, but we put it into barrels. And I choose 10 barrels, right? And six, five of them are new. Five have been used once. And then on the new barrels, maybe one of my cooperage, which is the producer of the barrel, for one reason or other, that oak on that barrel was not really well seasoned, which means it was not dried, maybe ideally, uh, even though we go four and five years, which is extreme. So we rarely declassify a barrel new. But then I go and I taste the wine. I'm like, oh, it tastes a little bit like, like wood, like cut wood or yeah. like green wood. And then somebody else says, no, I don't taste that. And you're like, oh, but I taste that. Oh, I don't taste that. You know, so it's, it's so, we are talking about nuances, right? Or it's like anything that you do here at your store, right? You are trying to select the best, and then you have your criteria, or a beer, or a keg, the foam on the keg, and you say, like, oh, no, nope, this is no good. Another person will say, like, this is perfect. Like, what are you talking about? Uh, we have endless examples of us sitting down when we were first opening the shop, drinking beers, going, I wouldn't never drink this. We will not sell it, and then... 50 people walking in and go, oh, where's this one beer? Where's this one beer? I'm like, all right, fine. We put it on. And it sells out immediately. And they're like, how? Yeah. It has such a terrible taste. And But it's it's one major thing we love to do is pour for everybody. Because then just because we don't like it doesn't obviously mean somebody else doesn't. They, they will pick up on a different flavor or something. So to finish answering your question, the wine goes through the same process. It goes into a very expensive barrel. But for some reason, I taste it and I say, this doesn't work in my blend. It's kind of throwing me off by something. And then you just decide to declassify, but that means you are losing a lot of money. Right. I've, uh, I've but just, I, sometimes it's, it's worth it. Like sometimes I'm like, that absolutely, we cannot make more than six barrels of this blend. Sometimes your biggest blend is the best blend, which that's the best. So, like when I was doing a lot of Napa blends and big productions, like you really like are surprised when you present a blind tasting to the team or the sales team or the owners and everybody prefers the wine that's going to make more money for the winery and everybody and then you're like wow this is like 600 cases more and we all love it 
because all the components were just perfect for that blend because we are blending so many different tanks, lots, vineyards, blocks. Plus, it probably can help if you go, all right, I'm declassing my you know, $60 bottle to my 25 and all of a sudden, a thousand more people try your wine and go, holy shit, that oh. is amazing. And all of a sudden, you grab a few more people in, and now they're dedicated. Like, oh, I love this. And I like the way you goes. think. Yeah, you make it, me feel better it now. It gives you a little, mm. it, it solidifies your foundation a little bit, yeah. kind of. Yeah, I mean, we definitely are just a high-quality winery. That's, That's good. Really I mean, you have a solid so. expectation at that point. So that's yeah. that goes straight to my computer for some <laughs> reason. Um, so the red wine that I just poured for a bit, this is the blend. Yeah. So what is the blend on this one? This is already classified uh, spicy tuna uh, roll. It's the, grand, the kitchen <laughs> grandma <laughs> sink. It is no, not. I'm just, I'm just it with is you. not declassified. <laughs> <laughs> She's looking at you. I will kill you. <laughs> but you know I'm from Colombia, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. You better be afraid. Um so the red wine actually doesn't have any Pinot declassified, but it's uh, Syrah, Merlot, Cabernet Sauvignon. And I, as I mentioned before, I love Syrah. I also work in South Africa for three different years. And I really got to experience a lot of Syrah Merlot blends, which you never see in the U.S., you never see in France. And I was at the beginning like, Syrah with Merlot, what are you doing? But then once you put it together, you have like this red fruit from the Merlot, and then the tannins and the grip and the spiciness from the Syrah. So I love that blend, and I just really wanted to bring a red blend that is not the typical Sinfandel sweet red blend that is so big, that like, so syrupy that I can't even drink it. <laughs> but to really show consumers that you can have blends that are great for food, that are really respectful with great acidity. So that's the purpose of that wine. No, this was, I haven't even said to you, it smells very nice. It's nice to see sometimes, you know, people who are hyper-focused on, you know, Syrah Pinot, and they're like, oh, by the way, I also make this wine that's kind of unexpected. Like, I had no idea you had a red blend, mm -hmm. so I'm excited on on this one quite a bit, actually. Yeah. I actually have one other random wine, by the way. Oh. But you bring something from home? I did. My 2012 oh. Wayfair Traveler. Wow. I cannot <laughs> believe you have that. Yeah. So I sat, I, when. <laughs> She's getting all like nostalgic. Wow. Yeah. It's literally the last bottle I have. Oh. I, uh, I, I was telling you earlier, obviously, I had a dinner one night where somebody had poured the straight Wayfair. And I thought it was delicious. And I was like, I want this. And then I came out and they had that seven bottle pack that they had released. You know, the Chardonnay. Was it? I think it was like Ribbon Ridge or not Ribbon Ridge, like Pages. I, I remember all the singles. Page Ridge. So Page it was Ridge. Page Ridge, Golden, Golden Rock, the Traveler, Golden Mean, Traveler. There's another one in there. Mo uh, Mother Rock. Mother Rock. Mother Rock, yeah. And the estate. And the Traveler was the suitcase clone. Yes. I've never drank this. I've never had the Traveler. I've literally never. I had all those. I drank through all of them. I bought all the for years after just a straight blend and a couple of the other ones wow. but i saved this for the longest time and i was like i'll open it one day i'll open it one day i'll open it one day wow. and i never had the right occasion wow. and then he let me say you're coming in i was like well there's the right occasion oh. so yeah so we're gonna pour this <laughs> that's so cool yeah wait for it God, was the uh, biggest freaking cork too. i know it's a 54 <laughs> millimeters cork <laughs> And the reason why I chose to do that, at that point. yes, it was just to make a statement and to tell people that uh, we really believe that that fruit and that vineyard could produce grapes that would age a wine for more than 20 years. 
We'll so keep that this was all really night too, the, see how this turns out. Yeah, that was really the purpose and really a project I put my whole heart. I love making it. I feel super thankful for what Jason Pormeyer did for me, I would say, because there are not that many winemakers that are the vineyard manager of their own estate. You normally in California it's very separate. People have specialized and you know there is so much economics involved yeah. that you have farmers and you have winemakers, and they are really like separated. And the big giant conglomerate above them who manages and owns whatever huge production winery they right. have. Right. And you know, in France, it's the opposite. The winemaker is the farmer, and they are really all the way through the process. So you really have so much control. And again, control freak Bibiana. <laughs> I, I really wanted to have a project where I could be in control. So when they approached me to be a consultant winemaker for Wayfair, they initially just said, hey, can you make two tons of really good Pinot Noir, and we can give you two tons to make it in Sonoma. And as we start talking, and I went to the vineyard, I told Jason and the president at the time, Brian Hillier, I said, if you want me to do this, I want all the fruit, and I want 100% control on the vineyard. So I really became the vineyard manager and the winemaker. So I would decide if we are trapping gophers and spending a lot of money <laughs> on killing those little animals. Just destructive little oh animals. Oh my gosh, which they killed so many vines. I was infuriated. I just is that, wanted... Is that the big vine killer? Is gophers? <laughs> well, we were like at 92% of productivity because they were losing a lot of vines. Killing gophers is very expensive. It's because very you need a person yeah. And it's very difficult. So you need a person that spends a whole day Start in the morning, puts the traps, and then you're on an ATV driving through 30 acres yeah. to find only five or ten. I mean, do you imagine? Oh, we do. It, the gophers out here are insane. Uh, so the big problem is they destroy all the golf courses. So everybody loses their mind. But we had them at our house. And my dad would be out there in the morning with traps. And the second the soil would come <laughs> up, you could hear him audibly go, oh, I'm going to get it. Like <laughs> run out there and just dig it up, push it down. We had a husky. And he would sit out there and just stare at the ground. And he'd oh stare God. at the ground. And all of a sudden, he would just start digging like crazy. He never got one because they're going to run away at that point. But they are destructive Yeah, shits. they are. So it's very interesting because when you manage everything, you decide where you put the resources. Yeah. Also, we found out you're an exterminator as well as a <laughs> winemaker. <laughs> so I remember being at a manager's meeting. And I had my foreman at the vineyard. So I was the first one to build a barn at the vineyard to buy equipment. So we got our own tractor and our sprayer and our mowers so that we could control the farming. We, it would cost way less to the vineyard cost. And then I had a foreman, uh, Fermin, which I adore. So he would send me pictures every day at the end of the day to show <laughs> me how many gophers. So we, he would align them on his truck. So I'm on this meeting with the managers, and we are talking budget and cost and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So like, do you want to know where I'm investing your money? On this. <laughs> and I lift my phone, and I show them this picture, and they were like, Viviana, that is so gross. I'm like, that's not gross. <laughs> we are making wine here. That is making wine. And I... That's part of the process. <laughs> I really love that he just say, you know, he, he wasn't my vineyard, but he said, this is your vineyard. This is your project. You can do whatever you want. There was no expectation on it, of it. And I feel like I went to that vineyard and I was like, this is just a gem that hasn't been polished and thought through it. And... Yeah, I, I put my heart and soul and blood on that project. So I'm super proud of all of those wines. And I'm very proud of what they are doing today. Um, so, yeah, it's a beautiful sight. 
No, that that's awesome. I mean, I was really excited that this opportunity presented Thank itself. Thank you. And sometimes the universe comes together and throws you something. You wing. Oh, here you go. Let's see what happens with this. Mm. So I. Obviously, thank you so much for coming here today. This thank you. Uh, this has been really fun for me. Um, my dad's coming later; he'll definitely remember and talk to you for a while. But this is the first time we got to do a wine podcast in here. <laughs> really? Yeah, we did we're so a bunch of beer ones. so much beer recently. No way! Well, our first forty episodes were all about wine, and yeah. then but we moved the studio in here, and we just haven't had a whole lot of chance to do wine ones. We keep talking about it because you're literally one of the first people who's come to Arizona because of the pandemic. You need to do a selfie of the three of us. Oh yeah, oh, Californians, oh, yeah. we are not going anywhere. Like yeah. I am here. Like where is everybody's all, mask? All the where beer is my people mask? were like, all right, we're in the city, or we're coming out, and they caught up, and then every you know. As James will say, we had Nicholas Biscard, awesome uh, Italian producer, on, and we had so much fun with him. But this was back at the house, and now that I built the studio, it's like great. We're gonna get into it. We're gonna do wine. We're gonna do all this, and then it was beer, 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 mm -hmm. and then this was like we did it. We finally have a wine one coming. Yeah. So I have you know. to say, your story is so cool. Congratulations. Yeah, now we just gotta add like the little pieces to it. <laughs> Slowly, awesome. the nostalgia wall is gonna get built with pictures and some fun stuff, uh -huh. but. This is great, David. Yeah, see, I get nostalgic. We were, you talked about this in the beginning about drinking old vintage wines. And for me, it's very special to drink something like this that's nine years old. Yeah. Your kids weren't even born yet. They were not. You know, were you married at this point? I was just going to ask. I was. All right. I was just married. I married, uh, Jeff and I, we got married in 2011, November 11. Oh, one day for my birthday. Oh. <laughs> I'm a 12th. Oh, look at that. So it's just always... <laughs> I love how he brought it back to me as if I was the important one in that <laughs> conversation. <laughs> it, you got married, but I was the other day. I like it. It's always fun just thinking about what was going on in 2012 and the fact that some farmer was staring at these grapevines every day, watching them grow, clipping this little leaf here and moving this so it gets a little yeah. more sun, not knowing that when those grapes got picked in 2012, that some three people would be sitting in a podcast studio and... 2021 yeah. drinking that wine. I know. I couldn't imagine. to that, Cheers. I have to say. And that That's to awesome. me is very special. You know? Thank you. Yeah. Nine, nine years ago, pretty much right around, I'd imagine this time, they'd be, well, still in tank or heading into barrels by now. We harvest in September. So they, some of them would probably be in tank, but they were many of them maybe. So you're probably out there killing gophers about this time maybe. <laughs> no, it's really on the summer because it's so dry. And they just go and you, you, they make those holes. And <laughs> I, I became so obsessed. I mean, we have gold rich soils. So I have to explain, right? It's not like some vineyards don't need it, some other vineyards need it more. But gold rich soils are very sandy, loamy soils, so very powdery, very light soils. So gophers just love that. And if you don't kill them, they just keep growing. growing. They make babies. They make a lot of babies. They make more babies than humans faster than us. <laughs> <laughs> Top songs so, of 2012, Gundam style. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> Carly Rae Jepsen, Call Me Baby. Who also was like 35 <laughs> at the time. <laughs> it's always funny, like the guy, somebody that I used to know, Gaiuti or whatever. Oh yeah. It's always fun to think about the music back then. You're like, oh my God, Gundam style. That was so long ago. I love that song. It was so cool. <laughs> it was Every so popular. Every club. Oh, we should play it. We have to play it. I mean, it. probably at some point. So here you are now with your own label, doing well. Yeah. You got your kids. Everything's going nice. What are you thinking about? basically your past right here <laughs> what do you think of the wine that you formerly made nine years ago yeah so you know i think of 2012 was a ripe year um so i think i can see that maturity on the wine um 
I still think that at the beginning it's just very reduced. So the one is so close and you're like trying to figure out what you smell. And as you open it, I start getting more of like what I remember of that wine. Um, still very fresh, very young. It had a great acidity uh, during the fermentation. So I think I can see that on the wine. Uh, we did 80% of New York on this wine. So I always went really heavy on the New York uh, for this cuvee. And the pH on this wine was like 3.38. So it's like a super low pH. Yeah, lowest. I love uh, it. She remembers that so all I these years later. Every bit about it. <laughs> and everybody was so scared because everybody was like, Bibiana, California Pinot Noirs are not that acidic. And I'm like, it just tastes, it just such, it's a suitcase crown and it tasted like so burgundy. I would say tasting it now, I don't think burgundy would have this fruit after nine years. And I think in Burgundy, I would be tasting more earthy tones and maybe a bit of truffle tones, tones. But uh, um, I just really like that it has still a lot of that fruit, uh, but the acidity is going to linger more. And I think it's a wine that I would still recommend anybody to decant if people is going to drink it like in the next 15 minutes. Well, we're gonna, I was going to say, we're going to leave this out for a while. Yeah. Was Fort Ross Seaview an AVA at the time? So they became an AVA in 2009. Okay, uh, 2000, so, it so it was really like just when everybody was talking about it. And I remember being at the Fort Ross Seaview AVA meeting, the growers meeting, and many of the producers were like, well, we chose, we are not going to put Fort Ross Seaview AVA. We're going to put Sonoma Coast because nobody knows the for Rossi VABA. And I was coming from France. I always told the family and everybody, you always want to promote the smaller AVA where you are because it's already defining really that side that how many people is on the for Rossi VABA. And today, I think maybe 90% of the producers on the appellation put for Rossi VABA. It seems to be kind of a popular, that whole far yeah. west Sonoma I know, and now it's far. like a big deal. But 10 years ago, it was a big deal that we decided to start a new label and to really put for Rossi VABA. And well, I really believe on that a lot, so awesome. proud of that. Well, yeah, I'm just, it seems like you're really proud of all the wines, especially what will be the 2021 vintage. Oh, boy. Yeah, can't I can't wait, wait to try that. it now. Yeah, yeah we're going to have to. In three so years. So this, this has been awesome. Um, obviously, we're going to go out and taste wines with everybody. Uh, for anybody who's looking, how can they reach you? Instagram, Facebook, be on your website. So the easiest to find the wines is on their website. So almadecatreyawines.com. Uh, or no, almadecatreya.com and <laughs> catreyawines.com. And my Instagram is Bibiana with a B, B-I-B-I-A-N-A, G-R-P. Uh, my three last names, initials. Yeah. And I'll tag all that stuff into yeah. everything. So And Catalia, C-A-T-T-L-E-Y-A. Perfect. Catalia. Yeah, I remember the layout from the bun, the, the buns, basically. For people <laughs> that's what we look like right now. For people that are trying to look up the website, trying to figure out how to spell that. Yeah, exactly. This has been fantastic. Again, thank you so much for thank coming. You. Thank Looking you for forward. having me. Yeah, it's going to be a fun night. Yeah, let's go out there and pour some wines for everybody. Yeah, awesome. All right, Thank thanks, so everybody, much. for listening. We appreciate you. Again, if you want to reach out to Bibiana, you can find her on her websites that she just mentioned. And, yeah, come on in and have some of her wines. We'll have them here. Take care, everybody. Awesome. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you again. Thanks so much.